Hi folks, today I'm in Studio B at WOUB Public Media Center, and I'm delighted to be joined by Haile Voss. Haile is president of the Board of Directors for the Sugarbush Foundation, a supporting organization of the Ohio University Foundation. Sugarbush funds campus and community collaborations that seek to improve the quality of life in southeastern Appalachian, Ohio. It prioritizes environmental protection and restoration, zero waste, food security, and sustainable economic development. I am particularly excited to be joined today by Haile because I believe our conversation will invite all of us to reflect on the importance of an ecological perspective on health and well-being. Generally speaking, an ecological model highlights the interaction between factors across all levels of health. It emphasizes, for example, people's interactions with their physical and built spaces, community factors such as social norms. From an ecological perspective, the environment and human health are connected. The well-being of individuals is fundamentally shaped by their exposure, for example, to toxic chemicals in the, in the form of air, water, ground pollution. Individuals' health is informed by their access to adequate housing and nutritious food. As we move through today's conversation, it's in part guided by a deep desire to move beyond an individualistic focus on behaviors and choices in relation to health. I hope our conversation challenges us all to consider community and societal level factors that contribute to both individual and communal well-being. So highly welcome. I'm so honored to have you as a guest today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Lynn. So as I introduced, you are president of the Sugarbush Foundation Board of Directors. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the board um, and what the foundation does. Talk to us about its mission, its core values. Yes, the Sugarbush Foundation was started in 2005 by my parents, Don and Marianne Flournoy, and they wanted to create an opportunity for the university, Ohio University, to pair with community organizations to improve the quality of life and environment in southeastern Ohio, in this beautiful rural Appalachian region where Ohio University is based. So your parents had this vision that there's value to be gained when you bring together the expertise that resides in a community and the expertise that academics might bring to those collaborations. Yes, there is a place-based expertise that's residing in a community that is not the same type of expertise that you find in a university. And these resources are often undervaluing each other or maybe potentially at odds with one another. But when they're brought together in a curated fashion, it can be really amazing if they can partner together and collaborate together the results that can happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I love what you just said about how expertise can reside in places, that there's something known as 
place-based expertise. Too often, when I think back to my own academic trajectory and career in the academy for for quite some time, we prioritized abstracted knowledge in the form of theories um, that have been tested and developed and sometimes evolved. But what I hear you saying is that we need a broader understanding of knowledge if we're really going to come together to address some of the important um, issues in our surround that impact our well-being. Yes. If you have a theory, but you have no place to to see how it walks out in real life, then what's the point of it? And that's uh, the experience that people in a community, in a place have, people who are working with the land, since we function with environment, who know the impacts of environmental factors on their communities in in rural areas. Um, If you can pair up a theory with their practical experience, then you can test out how it all applies. And you give, in the case of Ohio University, you get give students who are involved an incredible real-world learning experience that helps them understand what this is all for. Mm-hmm. So it reminds me of, of earlier conversations we've had, Haile, where you talk about living with your head, living with your hands, and with your heart. And all of that is important. Yes. I think that people who work with their hands have an expertise that is not always understood or valued by people who primarily work with their heads and in reverse. And But when you put those together, you see the Sugarbush Foundation and, and really in the, the extended Flournoy family, we live in the space of intersection. The intersection is, by intersection I mean the intersection of seemingly normally disconnected ideas or streams of thought or ways of doing things, but by being intentional about putting them together, you get the inspiration or of innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not always easy. It's not easy because there are institutional barriers. There are social Cultural, cultural barriers, definitely. Right. That can make those collaborations tricky. Right. So let's talk about that. What are, what are some of the challenges that you have to be prepared to walk through with your partners? One of the most important things for us is looking through an asset-based lens because if you look at your community or your region as an asset, then it colors how you approach the things you want to, ways you want to interact with the region. And one of the areas that we work on a lot is waste. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at waste as a problem, well, we have a lot of waste issues in our community and in our region. Um, And so then you are constantly in a deficit mentality, like we have these problems and we have to solve these problems and you're thinking about waste as a problem and it's... (laughs) And then 
Instead, if you look at that waste is actually an asset, then you have to look at it from a completely different perspective. You say, if that's an asset, I have to figure out how it is an asset, how to make it an asset. Wait a minute, what in there can we reuse, repurpose, recycle? Um, and then you start being creative. And then you start having design coming in. And then you start mimicking more of how nature actually is set up to work, which is to cycle things all the way around. Um, and then it gets fun. Mm-hmm. Gets a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant because it, for me, emphasizes how you flip the narrative of waste in our culture, right? That something that is considered toxic sludge in a waterway can actually be precipitated or cold out can be dried, can be repurposed. So rather than simply precipitating that iron ore from the waterway and taking it to a landfill, you're funding partnerships that are looking at, okay, how can we actually use this, right? So it becomes part of a circular economy. Yes, and you're talking about the True Pigments project, which is one that we fund. It's a collaboration between Dr. Guy Riefler in engineering and John Sabra, an art professor, and um, Rural Action was their watershed group. Now they've gone, uh, Michelle Shively has, uh, and Paul Patton from Rural Action, our community organization that they're partnering with, um, are working exclusively on this. Um, But it started with our county hosting the largest acid mine drainage seep in the state of Ohio, where a 1,000 gallons of water are pouring out uh, of old abandoned coal mines and then going into the streams, but they're carrying with it um, in this particular seep. It's a 1,000 gallons a minute of water, but it's carrying 6,000 pounds of dissolved iron oxide per day out of this one hole, and it just was polluting seven miles of this stream called Sunday Creek that goes till it gets to the Hocking River and dilutes. Um, And the technology that Dr. Riefler developed is to um, precipitate the iron out of the water. It's rust. It it looks like rust and it smells like sulfur. Um, But, you know, people who have this stream running through their yards are, you know, it's everything's dead in it. And um, by precipitating the iron ore out, uh, iron oxide out of the water, then they um, bake the powdered um, iron that they get at different temperatures. That's the what the art professor does and gets these beautiful colors. Then he paints with it and um, makes paint, the paint is painted with by many uh, artists, and this beautiful artwork has been developed, and they are developing now a full-scale water treatment plant on that property so that they can actually get rid of all of the iron that's coming out of there and return clean water into the stream. We'll clean seven miles of the river, and they'll have a product that we normally have to get from China, and it'll be locally produced, and it's in a very pure 
form because it wasn't having to be uh, washed out of mud. It's coming in, in just with water. So it's really a wonderful project that we're very excited to be walking along with. Yeah. I remember this past September when I had an opportunity to join you all on a field trip where members of your board and other folks from Ohio University were able to actually see, right, the seepage of the iron ore into the waterways. I could smell that sulfur that's in the backyard of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I listened to people connected to that project talking about how in their own families, across generations, their family had been involved in the coal mining industry. Mm -hmm. And this is an opportunity for them, right, to enter into kind of the story of where we're at with coal mining and what remains from an extractive industry and rethink, right, re-narrate their role now in their family um, and in the environment. It was just, it lingers with me highly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you were asking that question again. Please ask it again, the, the one that you asked that caused me to start talking about looking through an asset-based lens. Yeah. Um, um, it was a, about um, why it might be difficult why it might be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To create these partnerships and yeah. collaborations. Yeah. Um, there's a whole different way to look, to answer that question. I'd like to, if, if that's okay. Yeah, you bet. Um, it's kind of unnatural to have partnerships between community nonprofits and the university in many ways. For one thing, the university is on a very rigid artificial schedule. It was worse when we were on quarters, but it's better now that we're on semesters. But still, it, whatever is happening in real life, it's irrelevant to whoever is in a, a university. They have to stay on this rigid schedule. Here's the end of the semester, and mm, we have this amount of time. There's another um, aspect in the case of um, local foods. Um, we have a project called the Farm to Ohio Working Group that where um, – a produce auction that's out in an Amish community, the Chester Hill Produce Auction, that's run by Rural Action Sustainable Agriculture, um, was involved in talking with Ohio University. How do we help get lo our local farmers' produce to be purchased by Ohio University? And the, the partners were facing each other, and they were both desiring for this to happen, but yet there was a distance an infrastructural difference, distance. And the reason, the first reason was that school year is from September to April and the growing season is from April to September. And so you have to figure out, okay, when you're growing the vegetables, we do not need them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need them at the other time of year. So they say, where can we start? How about sweet potatoes? Long shelf life, you know, don't have to be refrigerated. Uh, and so then they say, okay, but we have to have, you know, culinary services sitting down with, um, with 
Community Food Initiative is another one of our partners, and uh, and with um, Rural Action Sustainable Agriculture, and saying, okay, how do we get uh, to bu- purchase this food? Well, uh, commu- uh, Culinary Services, uh, Gwen Scott says, we have to purchase things that are certified at a high FDA-approved level. And so then what the Sugarbush Foundation was able to do was to pay for these Amish farmers and other farmers to receive the training and the to go through this certification pro- process so that their pro- produce met these certifications and was qualified to be purchased. That was one of the infrastructural barriers that had to be removed, and including the Ohio Student Farm, which is uh, produce be- that's being grown by Ohio University students, wasn't even qualified to go be used by Ohio University, but they got the certification, and now it is. Yay. So um, just seeing them sitting together, every, I think they sit down every other week, and they say, well, okay, what can we do now? about blueberries. Blueberries can be frozen, okay, and then they they would say, well, we have, uh, we can give you, I'm making up the numbers here, but we, we can get you 250 pounds of blueberries. And the university's like, we need 2,500 pounds of blueberries. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, we'll let you go first. This is economic justice. Uh, this is uh, because by letting the people who grew it locally, who were certified, um, will say, we'll buy your blueberries first, and then we'll fill in the back uh, with blueberries grown further away. It gave the local farmers the um, confidence that they could increase their capacity and um, know that they were going to have a market. And then COVID hit. And so just when they were really getting going on that, the unimaginable thing that that could ever happen was that the dining halls closed at Ohio University. And, and Ohio University, the most stable organization in the whole region here, closed its campus. And so then it, it was amazing to see how Community Food Initiatives, which is was one of the partners on, on this project, has such a robust network of relationships of to food banks and other food providers that they working with rural action I'm not saying it was easy but they were able to pivot and still purchase the food from the local farmers that they had anticipating being able to sell to Ohio University instead they were able to sell it to, um, they were able to purchase it and, and get it distributed to food banks and uh, uh, buying clubs and other sources to where the farmers didn't lose out. Yeah. But the food, and the food still was not wasted. It was still diverted to other sources. And we felt like that was one definition of what resilience is. And the way resilience works is if you have a dense enough, interconnected enough network of relationships. If one thing goes down, you can pivot and rely on others. Absolutely. So to bring this back to Sugarbush Foundation, Mm -hmm. of which you lead the board, Sugarbush funded 
campus community partnerships that included rural action and community food initiatives, the Voinovich School. You funded a, a graduate teaching assistant, research assistant, who helps farmers become GAP certified so that their produce is eligible to be sold at Ohio University. Our partner, university partner in that one, is Culinary Services. Mm, yeah. And Gwen Scott's been wonderful to work with. That's fantastic. And all of this just requires dialogue. It requires people meeting. It requires walking into a room together and saying, okay, this might be difficult. And what's aspirational? What can we accomplish? And, and how can we help foster that? And there are other partners at the university participating in that too, like the Center for Campus and Community Engagement with Mary Nally and um, the Office of Sustainability with Elaine Getz and Sam Crowell. And they are now doing a farm-to-institution conference, virtual conference on March 2nd that will um, talk about some of the things that they've been learning and also hear from other institutions of higher education who are working to figure out this path from, from local farms, local foods to institutional buying as well. Yeah. It's also my understanding that, um, especially during COVID, this relationship, the network that, that you've helped to support was able to divert some of those foods to the cat cupboard, which provides resources for college students um, who might be food insecure. That was a huge thing, especially during COVID. During COVID, because the campus shut down, all the international students lost their jobs on campus, Mm -hmm. or most of them did, Mm -hmm. because most of them needed whatever they were doing was in person. And then that was in the spring. And then right following that, the summer, most international students have internships that they do that help them meet their expenses. And most of those got canceled. And they were also stuck here in Athens because so much international travel was banned. So we had about 300 international students who were really stuck and didn't have a legal way to earn money because they are their visas tell them that they can only work on campus. And all of a sudden, that was gone. So there was a high degree of need for food for the international students. And the Ohio Student Farm, they were growing food in there, and all of a sudden, everything, you know, messed up for, for them, just like for everybody else, but... They kept on with their community partners harvesting food that they had already planted and diverting it through the produce auction to the cat's cupboard so that there was fresh produce in um, going there. And there were other, like, this is, doesn't have anything to do with the Sugarbush Foundation, but there were amazing, I just want to give a shout out to the amazing effort of community members who stood up and were bringing groceries and watching the list of needs just very intentionally all that summer and and spring and the following fall um, to keep keep that 
shelves on the cat's cupboard filled. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that in our social imaginary, when we consider food insecurity, university students don't come to mind. Mm -hmm. Yet there's a significant and growing number of, of students in colleges and universities who go hungry. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of factors related to that, but um, I've seen this partnership start to address some of those concerns. And, and to circle back, highly to what you said about place-based knowledge, students are also learning about regional foods and things like seasonality. And they will take that with them wherever they go, right? They're learning about a pawpaw, <laughs> which they might not have experienced before, <laughs> and that it can be turned into bread or beer. Um, and so that place-based knowledge is being developed for our students as well. Yes. My dad was a professor here uh, from nineteen seventy. One, I think he came to Ohio University. He was came as the dean of University College and ended up being a professor in telecommunications, now media arts and studies. Um, so he said back when he first came to the university, it was looked down on to have a project that had a community partner. Mm. It was considered that there was nothing useful or helpful or worthy or worthwhile going on here locally. You had to go and have a project with um, a, a large university in a big city or, or something like that, a big corporation or something. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that attitude has really changed, that now we look at this region as a place of opportunities, as a place of great natural resources, beauty, Challenges, but those challenges are also opportunities for an am amazing amount of learning to participate in those. Mm -hmm. You don't deny the structural difficulties, but you enter into them from a place of how can we think about this from an asset-based perspective. Exactly. Yeah, that's, um, and again, if we think about some of the the barriers that might exist, we all live in a cultural surround that's guided by deficit-based perspectives, right? Where individuals with developmental differences, for example, are seen as less than, or their life is guided by services that are geared towards fixing them or normalizing them. And while some of those services might improve quality of life, if that's all you've experienced, somewhere along the way, we all have failed to benefit from the gifts and the beauty and the expertise that you have to offer us, right, because of that deficit-based narrative. That is so true. That is so true. I keep thinking, as you're telling this, of my grandmother who was in a wheelchair and had Alzheimer's and was cared for in her own home by a Filipino family. Mm -hmm. And our culture tends to put uh, 
elderly people or people with with differences away, you know, like in the back room or, you know, where you don't bring them out in public and you just keep them hidden because you wouldn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable or embarrassed or whatever. That was not the culture of the Filipino family. They brought Whenever they were having guests over, they did her hair, they did her nails, they pulled her out, and she was very social, and she just loved it. And she would be sitting there in the middle of everything, and everyone would greet her. That was their culture. It was, and it was so dignifying. It was so loving. It was. It was. It was so right. And um, I. We also, the Sugarbush Foundation, is also involved in a project with Passionworks. And that's what we love about Passionworks is, is how they say, no, this, this is not something to be hidden or pushed away or someone or something. And I say someone or something because also Passionworks is using a tremendous amount of upcycled materials. So they're taking something that someone else looked at as, well, we can't use this anymore. This is old scrap fabric, or this is old, this is old scrap metal. We don't, we have no use for this anymore. Let's just put it away. And and Passionworks says no. Let let us let us bring this to the bring out the beauty in this thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. the perfect example is that my dad had a big old rusty satellite dish that he used in the early days of satellites and he used to bring his classes from here at Ohio University out to see this sa- satellite dish it was about 6 feet around and it had been uh was just on the farm and it was so rusty and old and ugly and I do not know why but it occurred to me I should give this to Passionworks. And Passionworks, they, they took it to the makerspace and they, they sanded it and they cleaned it up and then they gave it to their artists to paint. And it is the most joyous, beautiful, it has a, it's like a garden scene with whimsical flowers all over it and a, and a sunglass wearing raccoon walking out of the <laughs> garden. <laughs> and it's hanging on our hay barn now in our barnyard. And that's an example of how it was an asset, but you have to know how to how to help other people to see that it's an asset. Right. And there are thousands and thousands of satellite dishes in landfills and parking lots being unused, right? So it, you've started something. And for our listeners, when... Um, this episode is released. We'll put photos on our social media so you can actually see the satellite dish that that Hailey's been talking about. Tina McKee is an artist at Passionworks who drew that raccoon and put those sunglasses on that raccoon. And and for her, this is an, an opportunity for her artistic expression to now be visible, right? To be enjoyed, to be shared with with the world. To bring joy. And yeah. it really does. Yeah. To bring joy. To bring joy. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. I've been talking to Haile Voss, president of the Sugarbush Foundation Board of Directors. 
we've been talking about work that reflects an ecological perspective on health, one that considers social, environmental, and economic forces that inform well-being. On our Facebook page, we've provided a link to the Foundation's website and hope you take time to learn more about their work. Okay, back to the conversation. Okay, so Haile, I want to do a deep dive into one of your other projects that we haven't talked about yet, but I know will be of interest to, to listeners of this podcast. You work with Ken Eilers uh, from Habitat for Humanity, along with um, many campus partners. And as, as I ask you this question, I, I want to share with you a quote from Ken when I had the opportunity to have a conversation with him in the fall. And it stopped me in my tracks both then and and when I revisit it, it is a humbling and haunting reminder to me of the importance of our built environments and access to affordable and safe housing, how central that is to our well-being. So when I was talking with Ken, in his words, he shared, nothing is simple about housing, but yet housing is everything. Housing is the epicenter of life. It's where we have our greatest successes. It's where we discuss our greatest challenges. It's where people learn. It's where people grow. And without decent housing, you're not set up with a good foundation. And yet it's a complex thing in our society to solve. Talk to us about how the Sugarbush Foundation has brought together partners with a social enterprise model to think about how Habitat can have a sustainable foundation to, to start to address some of these housing needs. Yes, Habitat for Humanity is a wonderful example of how many nonprofits now are looking for mission-related income streams that are from small businesses that they will run that help them to accomplish their mission so they're not 100% dependent on philanthropy. And when you have a product uh, or like Habitat does because they are recovering materials from building sites and from um, renovations, then they're saying, how can we use those? Um, so one of the things that Sugarbush Foundation did was um, they had teams that were, would go and demo a, a building or raid it before it was going to be demolished um, or before a renovation. And they would take out the things that could be used um, again if and resold again. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to increase their capacity for this so that they would have enough materials to open another restore, which they already had one in Athens, but they opened the one in, in Zanesville, and we helped to get 
that capacity increased. But um, this has been an incredible thing with Ohio University because um, with Ohio University students helping through our funding, they worked out partnership between Habitat and Ohio University's um, procure procurement and other partners at the university so that when the university is about to renovate a building or tear one down, first they can bring in the outside partners uh, of, of Habitat to come in. I think when they were starting to uh, want to renovate the Woosock building on West Union, they took out, I think they said, 20 box truck loads and three semi-truck loads of materials, and they could have taken more, but the building started to get too unstable, and it was unsafe to go in there. <laughs> um, and so it's wonderful. They've done that with Peden Stadium, with Scott Quad, um, and it's going on, continuing on. Um, and so it's hard to realize sometimes that things like ceiling tiles can be reused or... It's not just that they would take the furniture, which they will, but they can also take the water fountains and they can take the sinks and they can take the cabinets and the door hinges and the door handles and, you know, and the doors and the windows. And um, right now, if you talk about people who are um, living kind of on the edge economically, where if you have a source for buying a secondhand item, right now because of the supply chain problems, the cost of building materials is ridiculous, twice and three times, and sometimes more what it once was. And so the demand for used items is very high right now. The profits that come from them selling these items at the restore restores because they have one now in Fairfield County, Zanesville, and in Athens County, all within this Habitat affiliate. Um, those profits are used to be able to build homes for people who would not otherwise be able to be uh, homeowners. And there's a lot of research that shows that if you own your own home, you have better more stable life for your family, you have a better educational outcome for your children. The other aspect of it that you might not real think of is this partnership that Habitat has with the land bank. The land bank looks for the worst blighted properties in these outlying communities, many of which have been shrinking in population because of the decline of coal mining. Yeah. And if your neighborhood has a blighted house in it, it really impacts your property value, but it also is stressful to see it there regularly, especially if it's right near your house. And it's also um, a magnet for negative activity, like a drug activity or whatever. When they remove through the land bank, um, remove a blighted property, or if it could be renovated, um, and Habitat has been involved in both, um, then Habitat can, they have a site there that already is plumbed, ready to, or has the pipes, you know, and they can, they can just build the house and re replace it with a new house where there was once an eyesore. It really has a big impact on the whole block. They suddenly perk up, everybody feels, oh, there's something new come, coming in. This is a desirable place, not a, a fading place. And that, that makes a big difference in these outlying communities.
It does. So it's creating a, a social enterprise within a nonprofit that aligns with its mission mm-hmm. that can generate ongoing revenue to mm-hmm. support that mission, mm-hmm. right? Um, beyond the restores, the partnership has also created programs to train people in construction skills. Is that correct? Yes. They got delayed on this because of all the COVID uh, issues and the expense of of building materials, but they are now um, launching the a construction company. Mm-hmm. And it will be a construction company that where they're training their workers. They're 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 doing a construction worker training program and a, launching a small construction company that can give the construction workers that they're training experience, and then they can go on to other jobs after that. But it's they did a lot of work with Ohio University to test different ideas of business models, and. This is the one that came out the best, and and we're very excited about it. It's a wonderful thing. There's there's a lot of construction jobs, and it's going to be an increased shortage of construction workers. So training our local people for construction work is a great way to give them a hands-on, practical, and lucrative career. Yeah. I vividly remember walking into the training center and visualizing how they had set up a station where there was a roof where people could learn how to do roofing. And if you move to a different station, right, they could learn how to do plumbing. Mm-hmm. They could learn how to, to work um, with wiring. Mm-hmm. So just really opening up opportunities for people to develop their own knowledge and their skills. And and I spent a good deal of time um, just admiring, even touching the twenty-inch planer <laughs> that was at the facility. Because uh, for those of you who do any woodworking at all, a planer is essential. It helps to smooth right the otherwise um, rough edges of a piece of wood and. Uh, Scott, my husband, and I have a planer, but it's only 13 inches. And so there are limits to what you can do, right? Highly, the charcuterie board that we made for you, it's its not any bigger than 13 inches. So at that construction site, I, I also um, was just hanging out by the planing station <laughs> because, um, yeah, that's, that's an incredible resource. So think back in, in your life. What prepared you to assume this leadership position? Is it something you envisioned for yourself? And if not, what experiences along the way have positioned you to help support these campus community partnerships that are trying to improve the quality of life in southeastern Appalachian, Ohio? Well, of course, I grew up here, and my parents were career at Ohio University, and they, my mom was the associate director of international studies, and they, but they were both very active in the community in different ways. My mom was on lots of boards. She was president of the Board of Rural Action for a while before the Sugarbush Foundation started. 
um, she was very civically active. My dad was active too, but more in things that had to do with farming and uh, tree planting and things like that. So it was a kind of a dual world that I grew up in. Uh, I had lived away most of my adult life, but um, from the time that the Sugarbush Foundation was started, which has been almost 16 years ago, my brother and I were given seats on the board because of how our family found, founded it. And then, so I just came at least three times a year for every meeting. And I never missed a meeting, even though I was living in Texas for a long time, for 10 years, I kept, came to every meeting. And so it, it reconnected me with this community in a really positive, exciting, engaging way. And I also learned the ropes uh, because I was here from the beginning. And I saw how my mom and her best friend, Carol Cure, really were the ones who laid down the, the foundational values for this, the philosophical framework for this foundation. Carol had been the founder of, of the community organization that we have been mentioning, Rural Action, and they use an asset-based community development model in, in how they carry out their work of um, community development. And my mother, I didn't learn until much later, in her PhD work had used an appreciative inquiry um, model for her PhD work. And they were really applying these principles into, into the way that they set things up. I didn't know what those were. I had never heard of them before, but I learned them by osmosis. So it's kind of like digging for gold now to learn more about what these theories and these foundational frameworks are all about in their more pure form, because I've learned them by how they're applied and how they, how they walk out. And it's, I just think of my mother and I think of how she believed in people. She was just a cheerleader for people. She loved people. She was excited about people. She could see their potential and believe in them, and it caused them to believe in themselves. And there's this, this carries on in the Sugarbush Foundation in not just believing in an individual's potential, but believing in the potential of your community, believing in the t potential of your region. And when you find people who have a passion or a vision for how they can make that positive thing come true in their community, then you have the honor and the privilege of being able to help fund that, as long as that is a partnership with Ohio University, <laughs> which is how they set it up to be. You bet. I've seen you, too, highly, boldly believing in people. I um, have no doubt that your mom would honor how you've carried on that legacy. It's, it's not easy. Everybody's human. Everybody has their weaknesses. Everybody has their fears. And, but if you can dream together, and you can put it to sp specific goals and 
milestones and activities, it's amazing what can happen. And if you can learn to work together with, um, you know, community and university partners who often are not, um, it, there's other challenges for how it can happen. Like sometimes the university's a big institution and it, and it can't move very nimbly. <laughs> or quickly. <laughs> sometimes it moves at a glacial speed. Yes. And then um, the community partner can be very nimble, but they might be completely overwhelmed by trying to partner with the university, which is such a big partner. And so it's, it's, it's challenging to, to try to figure out how to balance those and to put them at the table as equal partners. And we're not always perfect at it, but we but that is our model is of joint design where we participate together that the partners should not it's not we don't have a model where a community partner will come to the university and say, will you do this with um, the, they might say, will you do this with us, but not will you do this for us or can we do this to you or the other way around, not the university saying, can we do this to you? It's they have to do it with each other, and it has to be like a, an equal partnership. And and we try to come in and and watch. We have a framework for watching. Is this balancing? Is this balancing? And we try to meet with the partners to see if anything has gotten out of balance and, and isn't functioning right to see if we can make adjustments during the time while the proposals are being written or while the proposals are happening. Um, to, our goal is that when they come to us with a formal proposal that it's already a fundable proposal without any big problems in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a refreshing model too. It's a very imperfect thing, but it, it's also relational. Highly, on numerous occasions, I've heard you um, have a metaphor that's an anchor of a story that I think captures some of the dynamics that, that we've been speaking about. You talk about how it, there's a university partner that might be like a, an elephant, elephant. <laughs> right, yeah. on a teeter-totter. Can you yes. talk to us about that? Well, I sometimes will describe uh, what it's like for a community partner to try to um, – partner do work with a university partner as being like the ele an elephant, which is the university sitting on a teeter-totter with a rabbit, which is the community partner. You know, the rabbit may be jumping up and down and trying to get and saying, how do we get this to work? You know, because the, the no matter how much the rabbit jumps up and down, that elephant is not moving. And so figuring out how to to uh, balance the partnership so that it works, um, so that they can play together. And I mean, heck, if the if the elephant suddenly gets off, the rabbit can go flying, <laughs> and that's a problem too. And and um, those are there. There's a lot of power dynamics that have to be that have to be balanced. And also, we are a power player too, although we try to be aware of it and try to figure out how to. Um, be sensitive to that, that because there's an imbalance between funders and the people who are asking for funding when our goal, our model, 
is to, to be equal players around the table. We each have a piece to put in. And as I said, it's all imperfect, but, but that's what we humbly aim for. Coming for full circle, right, the key issues that you prioritize supporting a local and regional food system that can also help to reduce food insecurity, helping to create stable home ownership, helping to eliminate waste, moving toward a zero waste, um, sustainable way of living. These are really tricky, difficult, messy, um, ongoing challenges. Um, what have you learned along the way that's most important for us to kind of take away and think about? One of the things that we have learned is not to be afraid of walking with our partners for a long time. Mm. Most grants um, will be like maybe one to three years long. We don't actually give grants. We give gifts. But if you're wanting to make a systems-level impact, it's going to take longer. And the project that we have walked with the longest is the Zero Waste Initiative, Appalachian, Ohio Zero Waste Initiative between the Voinovich School and Rural Action's um, Zero Waste team. Mm -hmm. And they're coming to the end of their 11th year with us, with our funding. And they are just now, I mean, they've done amazing things for all these 10 years, 11 years. But they're saying, we're just now on the cusp of what we can really make a region-wide impact. And one of the things they were talking about uh, this so excitedly is how they have learned that if they've met somebody in a community who was a really um, passionate about trying to improve recycling or other kinds of waste reduction in their communities, if they offer to go and host in that community a, a CHARM, which is a, a, it's a, an acronym for something about a hard-to-recycle day, a collection day. Yeah. And then they meet the kinds of people who are really interested in that kind of thing in that community because they will hear about it and be like, oh, this is so wonderful you're doing this. And they'll have an opportunity to say, well, what else would you like to do in this community? Mm-hmm. And they found the people who are interested and passionate about it, and it leads to other opportunities. Like, well, you, you know, you could, you could collect medical supplies, you know, like wheelchairs. And, and this is another big effort that this uh, Zero Waste Initiative has been working on this year is um, advertising for people to bring out the medical supplies that could be reused. Yeah. And, and people have them. They have potty chairs and they have, they have braces and they have canes and walkers and wheelchairs and all kinds of things that can be used again. And uh, this is developing the, the logistics and the infrastructure to receive them, to gather them, and then distribute them again to the places where they could be 
resold or given away is that's that's potentially a business that can cr create an income stream. It may be not able to stand on its own for a long time, and it might be what we call a social enterprise where it's housed in a nonprofit and creating an income stream for them, right. but it is not able to stand on its own as a business, but it is doing such a wonderful service for the people who need these supplies and who may not have the money to yeah. purchase them. And what I think people don't often realize is some of that medical equipment has a very short life cycle in terms of its use by individuals. Prior to um, me, me learning more about Sugarbush Foundation, um, I had actually participated in one of those charm days. I'm not sure if I shared that with you or no. not. As you know, my mom passed away about a year ago, and we had several um, pieces of equipment that right, in the last month and a half of her life were really essential to helping maintain that quality of life, helping her sit up, right, helping her move through the world. But that wheelchair, that, that walker, right, that um, bed lift has a lot more life in it. And we were able to take it, right, to uh, one of those charm events, right, the hard-to-recycle materials that they collect. We were able to take it with the knowledge that someone else is going to benefit from this. Mm -hmm. And it, um, it allowed – it was part of the healing process for us too, mm -hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Ed Newman and to all of the other people out there who are making um, processes like this possible. Another thing that the Zero Waste Initiative did was for about a year, the Zero Waste Director, who was before Ed Newman, Erin Sykes, she embedded at Oblenis Hospital mm. and worked behind the scenes with them to develop a five-year sustainability plan. It included five p pieces renewable energy, energy efficiency, waste reduction, recycling, which is challenging in, in a hospital environment, and local foods, increasing the usage of local foods. And they worked on it internally for a year quietly, and then they got it approved through their board, and then they announced it publicly and started it unstarted. And they're about halfway through, and I have, need to hear an update, and I don't know. I'm sure a hospital is a place that's been very uh, all hands on deck for COVID, so I, I'm interested to hear how they've done with that. But um, they said at the time that the work that they were doing um, was being watched by the other hospitals in the Ohio Health Network and would create a model that could be followed. And I just heard that Ohio Health was uh, hiring a sustainability coordinator at their corporate level um, to help orchestrate such activities in the other, in the rest of the network. And that's, it's, well, that's one of the things the Sugarbush Foundation likes to do is say, if we build on our assets, we create a model that others can look at 
and and get an idea of what could be done. Haley, in closing, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like our listeners to understand about Sugarbush, about your guiding philosophy, about the world you seek to create by the questions that you ask? I think it's a lot more fun to look at what can be, to look at what's right and build on that than to look at what's wrong. Of course, you have to deal with things that are wrong sometimes. But if your primary focus is to find out on what's working and build on that, then you have a lot more fun than if you're trying to look at problems all the time and see how to solve them. It's just a different way of looking, and it's more fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're not addressing some of those systemic challenges, but how you enter into that right, and the questions that you pose shape and, and guide. The approach. Yeah. We absolutely are addressing systemic issues. Yeah. But the best way is to, to stick up for yourself and say, no. We're not a throwaway region. Yeah. We are yeah. going to show you that we're su- such an asset you wouldn't dare to throw away in our region anymore. I am so grateful that you are working to, to help shift the narrative of Appalachia from a depleted, desperate region um, to one that is full of potential. Yes. And I'm So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for for joining me today um, to boldly share what it is that you're doing. Thank you, Lynn. My pleasure. Thanks for joining Haile Voss and I for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our sound engineer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast WOUB. On our Facebook page, we'll provide a link to the Foundation's website. We hope you take time to learn more about the various projects supported by Sugarbush Foundation. Okay, take care. Go in peace.